Rehoboam is the king of Judah, and Jeroboam is the king of Israel. From this point on, all the way through the book of Kings, and all throughout the prophets, Israel no longer refers to the 12 tribes. From this point on, Israel only means the 10 tribes in the north. The 10 tribes in the north. And Judah is the name of the southern kingdom, which is only the tribe of Judah in the south, and maybe a little bit of Benjamin, a little bit of Simeon. We do not know exactly because the narrator is not clear on the politics. The kingdom, which was this, is if all the green and all the purple was the kingdom of Solomon. But towards the end of his reign, it was beginning to erode away through internal and external rebellions. And by the time that it splits and Rehoboam becomes the first king of the divided kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam becomes the first king of the divided king of Israel in the north, it now looks like this. Jeroboam has the purple in the north. And Judah with Rehoboam has the green in the south. And over the next couple of kings, Edom, Moab, Ammon are all going to rebel and take back their territories. And then Aram is going to get larger and larger and larger. And until the Assyrians come on the scene, Aram is the big bad boy on the block. They're the ones that they're fearing. And if it hadn't been for the Assyrians, Aram would have overtaken them. So the dividing line is right here above Jerusalem and Gibeah and Gibeon. And that is the exact same dividing line that the kingdom broke between Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and David when Saul had died back in 2 Samuel. So it broke at the exact same place because we've been talking about this. David and Solomon have been playing a lot of favorites with Judah. And there's been a lot of not taking care of the nation as a whole. And so anytime there's any threat of split, it's always along that line, the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom is the ten tribes in the north, and it is Israel. And Israel only refers to the ten tribes in the north. And the southern kingdom is the tribe of Judah, which is also known as the kingdom of Judah. As we go through, the narrator is going to highlight the first king of Israel, who is Jeroboam. And it's going to spend some time on him because he's going to become very evil. And he's going to set the benchmark for evilness from the, this point on. And everybody is going to be compared to Jeroboam. Every time a king is evil, they're going to always be compared to Jeroboam from this point on. And any time a king is good, they're going to be compared to David from this point on. And so the king of the Denarii is going to highlight Jeroboam for a while. And then when Jeroboam is done, it's going to kind of machine gun its way through a whole bunch of kings in the north and a whole bunch of kings in the south, just going back and forth, back and forth. Not literally every other one, but just here and here, here and there, there, and go forth. So that's kind of where we're going in this section. So chapter 12, 25. Jeroboam built up Shechem and Ephraim, the hill country, and lived there. And from there he went up and built Peniel. So he decides to make the capital Shechem. So Shechem is the capital of Israel in the north, and Jerusalem remains the capital of Judah, the kingdom in the south. Jeroboam then thought to himself, now the Davidic dynasty could regain the kingdom. 
If these people go up to offer sacrifices in Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem, their loyalty could shift to their former master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They might kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So he fears. He's beginning to fear the loss of his kingdom. And he says this, if they go up to Jerusalem. Now, we're used to thinking you should be going down to Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem is the temple. And it is the symbolic cosmic mountain of Yahweh. Whenever you're talking about Jerusalem and the temple, which represents the cosmic mountain of Yahweh, is always going up to Jerusalem. Because you're going up to the temple, you're going up to worship Yahweh, you're going up to the mountain of God, so to speak. He is fearing that they'll go up there. He lives in Israel. Remember, the temple is in Jerusalem in Judah. So everybody in Israel who's still loyal to Yahweh are going to go down or go up to Jerusalem. And every single time they go there, they're going to cross the border into the Judean kingdom. And if they keep doing this over and over, three times a year, they're required to go. They can go more than that, but at least three times a year, they're required to go. Three times a year, they're going to go. Next year, three times. Next year, three times. And maybe after a while, they'll begin to think, wait a minute. Why are we a part of Israel? Why are we under Jeroboam? I mean, yeah, there was that whole thing with Rehoboam, but after all, Yahweh's temple is here. Now, you're already beginning to see the signs of the temple being stationary. The problem with this temple being stationary. So he's afraid of thinking that they might think God is in Judah. Why would we be here in Israel if God is in Judah? We should rejoin Rehoboam and bring the tribes back together and be one united kingdom so we can have Yahweh too. It only took one generation before the people begin to think Yahweh is only in Jerusalem. Not all the people, but a good number. And at least Jeroboam's thinking that. Now, are his fears valid? Yes. These are real emotional feelings. The fears are valid, but does he really have any reason to fear? No. Why? God chose him. And God said, I am giving you the ten tribes of the north. And if you obey me, then I will make an everlasting covenant with you. He doesn't have to fear the politics. He doesn't have to fear the thinking of the people. He doesn't have to fear the journey. All he has to do is remain faithful to Yahweh. And Yahweh promises him everything will work out. Everything will work out for him. And so his fears are valid. These are real emotions, and we totally empathize with them and understand them. But he's not going to deal with his fears in the right way. He's not going to deal his fears in the right way. So chapter 12, verse 28. After the king had consulted his advisors, right there is the first mistake. He doesn't go to God. He doesn't pray to him. Not that there's anything wrong with advisors and consulting them, but the fact that it's consulted the advisors and that's it. He doesn't go to God. He made two golden calves. Then he said to the people, it is too much trouble for you to go to Jerusalem. Look, Israel, here are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He put one in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this caused Israel to sin, and the people went to Bethel and Dan to worship the golden calves. 
he decides to win the loyalty of the people by building two golden calves. Now, we haven't seen a golden calf since the Exodus, when they came out. And they built two golden calves in Exodus chapter 32. And he places one in Bethel right here, right above Jerusalem. So all the people don't really have to cross the border and go to Jerusalem. Just put it right next door. And then he put one in Dan, which is all the way above the Sea of Galilee and the little lake above that. So the people in north won't have to journey down. Now, on a practical level, this is really convenient. But theologically and biblically and morally speaking, this is horrific. He builds two golden calves. Now, this is horrific. Because the golden calf after the Exodus really angered God. This is considered, just like the Exodus is considered the greatest act of Yahweh ever, that everything in the Bible keeps looking back to over and over and over again. And even the cross becomes a manifestation of the Exodus. The golden calf is considered the worst sin ever committed other than in Kadesh Barnea when they said, we don't believe you can give us the promised land, and they refused to enter. That golden calf and that refusal to enter and Exodus chapter 32 and in Numbers 13 and 14 are considered the worst horrific moral events, immoral events in all of Israelite history until we get to the book of Kings. <laughs> and until then, God always looks back to that. Even when you get to the Psalms and the prophets, God keeps looking back to all their evil and sin in the wilderness. And he keeps looking back to his amazing act of love in the Exodus. And those are the two events he goes back. And so what has Jeroboam done? He recreates the most immoral act Israel has ever done. And then he doesn't just recreate it, he doubles it. And then he says exactly the same thing that the people did back in Exodus 32. Here, O Israel, are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, somebody did not pay attention in Sunday school class. He's a ding-dong. Remember, this is the equivalent of like you walking. I've mentioned this back in Exodus, but it's been a while. This is the equivalent of you walking into church. You're sitting down in the sanctuary. Your pastor gets up and pulls a blanket off of the statue of Buddha on the stage and says, Here, O congregation, is the God who died on the cross for your sins. That's basically what they're saying. That's basically what they're saying. But it gets worse. He built temples on the high places and appointed as priests people who were not Levites. So he didn't just allow the high places to remain places of sacrifices. He began to build permanent temples upon these high places for people to go to. And then he appointed priests who were not Levites. Remember, the whole reason the entire nation didn't get to be priests was because they worshipped the golden calf. Every firstborn of every family of every tribe was supposed to be priests, but they lost that right because they all worshipped the golden calf except for the tribe of Levi. So not only does he rebuild the golden calf, but then he appoints people who are not Levites to be the priests of this religion, which is totally like, what the heck? It is, it's recreating everything all over again. It's the whole Exodus 32 all over again. And then inaugurated a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month. The most important festival that Israel celebrated was Passover. 
It celebrated God's exodus out of Egypt. It was celebrated on the 14th day of the seventh month. So he created a festival the next month of the next day, right after Passover, to compete with Passover. Oh, you don't have to go down there to the temple for Passover. Just wait one more month, and you can go to two different places of worship for Passover. So he is literally trying to erase the salvific act of God in the Exodus. But if God told him if he would obey him, he would be okay, and he knew that. Yes. Why did he do that? The same reason that you don't obey every single day. <laughs> no offense, but you and you and you and you and me. We know it. We know we should pray to God first. But do we do it every single time? We know we should trust in God and not our resources and materialism. But do we do that every day? We know we should not get angry and lose our temper because it's not really that big of a deal with our children. But do we do that? No. We just, because we're stuck. Now, remember, he's also a product of his culture because all the kings before him did not take down the high places. Those high places are still there. And so just like our children are very tempted to go into sex and alcohol and now vaping and all this kind of stuff because it's constantly in their face all the time. And the amount of time that they spend at church and the amount of time they spend in the Bible cannot compete with the entertainment and the media and the poster boards being shoved in their face 24-7. So verse 32, Jeroboam inaugurated a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month like the festival celebrated in Judah. On the altar in Bethel, he offered sacrifices to the calves he had made, and in Bethel he appointed priests for the high places he had made. So he actually begins to function like a priest as well, which is forbidden by the law. You are not allowed to be king and priest simultaneously. And the punishment is death. The punishment is death. So he didn't last long in his obedience and faithfulness to Yahweh. And so now we have a corrupt king in Judah, Rehoboam, and a corrupt king in Israel, Jeroboam. Chapter 12, verse 33. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a date that had arbitrarily been chosen, Jeroboam offered sacrifices at the altar that he had made in Bethel. Now what it meant by arbitrarily was not that he just kind of rolled the dice and whatever date it fell on. He picked that one intentionally. But what God means by that is it was not a date that God picked. So God picked the seventh day of the 14th, sorry, the 14th day of the seventh month, because that's the day he saved Israel. This date's just picked because that's the date he came up with, and there's no cultural, theological, any kind of significance to that day, except he's just trying to compete. He inaugurated a festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to offer sacrifice. 